Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I have made his mountain a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this and you will say the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So we began working through Malachi last week and continue on into the first chapter this week. You will remember that Malachi was used by God during the same time as Nehemiah after the exile and during the rebuilding efforts that are going on in Jerusalem. The year of these prophecies and and of his prophetic work would be around the year 400 B.C. This would be the last prophetic voice before the coming of the Son of God in the flesh. hundred years before Malachi, hundred years before, um, during the prophetic work of Haggai, who called, Haggai called for the rebuilding of the temple, um, the people were receptive to the message of the prophet and responded by getting to work. They got to work rebuilding that temple. In Malachi now, a hundred or so years later, the cynicism and the hard-heartedness of the people is on display. It's evident. Not only are they willing to re- not willing to receive the rebuke of God, but they are so arrogant as to place the blame for their current situation on God's supposed lack of faithfulness to his own covenant. They're calling into question God's own faithfulness. In other words, that God's a liar. They're accusing God of being a liar. So we begin to work through the arguments God makes to the people about their rebellion, about their attitudes, about their accusations. So following the short intro we looked at last week, when God says that he has loved them, and they responded with that accusatory question, how have you loved us? And that's an astonishing question, isn't it? God says, I have loved you, and they say, eh, doesn't, not so much. So after that, God begins to point out their errors through the prophet. We read this first argument in response to their question, It's this, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountain a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. So God is responding to their accusation by going all the way back 
all the way back to his choice of Jacob and Esau, right? And, and his choice of Jacob and his rejection of Esau in particular. How does this answer their accusation that God has not really loved them? He is proving to them that he is their father and that as their father, he has cared for them. And yet they will not acknowledge him or give him thanks. In other words, in response to their question, how have you loved us? He answers them by speaking of his gracious covenant, his promises and the covenant enacted. Not on the basis of any of their own merit. Not on the basis of anything great in Jacob or anyone else in Israel. Not on the basis of anything but his own choice. That is the gracious and gratuitous love of God for them. Right? To point to Jacob is to say that. It's to point to his gratuitous love. Right? And they just won't see it. They won't see it. They have had the favor of God's choice upon them for ages, right? For over, I mean, it's, it's thousands of years. They have had that, that favor on them. And now at this late date in the history of Israel, after the exile has ended and they're returning to the ruins of Jerusalem and they're slowly rising, they refuse to hear about God's promises and his love. They refuse to accept it, right? They refuse to see God's blessings because bitterness has taken root in their hearts. The whole world has reason to acknowledge God. The whole world, because, because he causes the, the sun to shine on the wicked and the righteous. But with the descendants of Jacob, it's, it's much more than just that. They have his covenant love, right? His hesed, right? That, that loving kindness that set upon them, his covenant love. In the book of Deuteronomy, the people of God receive an explanation for why God chose them and placed his covenant love upon them. And it's, and it's, it's a circular argument that I love. In Deuteronomy 7, 7, we read this. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you, He's, this is God through Moses speaking to, to the tribes of Israel. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. Right? It's not because you were impressive and big and powerful. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So did you catch that? God says he loved the people because he loved them. He loved them because he set his love upon them. He loved them because he chose them. Right? Not because of any merit in themselves, but because he chose to place his love there. It was his sovereign choice. All of that is encapsulated in this phrase back in Malachi. Yet I have loved Jacob. Look at my, my covenant love through the ages. I have loved Jacob. And it must be remembered that Esau and Jacob were twin brothers. Right? They're twin brothers. And Esau, 
Who was the oldest? Esau was the oldest, right? And both were descended from Abraham. So the choice of Jacob is extraordinary. And it's just as it's made even more extraordinary in the rejection of Esau. Right? It is being brought up by God to the cynics of Malachi's time because it is proof of God's covenant love. That gratuitous love was quite hard for the Jews to accept. Right? All through their history, it seemed to be that they wanted to be like the nations around them and worship like the nations around them worshipped. And that worship was the worship of gods that made them work. Right? The worship of the nations around Israel was worship of gods that made them propitiate their gods and made them let their own blood, right? Made them impress God in order to be saved. All through the Old Testament, we see Jews sacrificing even their own children to Moloch in order to placate these false gods. The demands of those false gods were unmitigating, right? Even though God had, by his sovereign grace and by no works, put his favor upon them already, simply by his choice. Now, that's not a temptation for us, is it? You know, whenever I say that, that there's the right answer. Um, we are tempted. There, there's nothing new under the sun, right? We're tempted by the same, from, from Adam and Eve all the way through to the end of the scriptures. If there's a scene of temptation, then it's something that our hearts have had to or are currently dealing with, right? We can become envious of the wicked, can't we? We can become envious of the wicked who seem to be able to find peace in a little bit of yoga, Right? That God does not make too many demands. And so stretching in the morning is the morning sacrifice. And you can go through the rest of the day with those endorphins pumping and, and your God is giving you good endorphins. Right? I'm not opposed to exercise or yoga. I'm just using it as an example. Uh, unless it's your God, then I'm opposed to it. Um, but we have to come to terms with the troubling concept, right? We don't have, we don't have a, a God that um, can, is pleased with our filthy works. We have to come to terms with the troubling concept of the sovereign love of God. We have to come to terms with that. We have to come to terms with the very real fact that there is nothing we can do to earn our salvation Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Before they had done anything, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. It is in wrestling with this concept of the sovereign choice of God that the Apostle Paul brings up Jacob and Esau as well. He writes in Romans 9, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh 
who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of the promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had done had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's the whole point of Romans 9, right? Wrapping your head around God's sovereign choice. And then Romans 9 is the cynic asking the question, right? Well, what shall we say then? There is not, no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, God, he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. So it is to his sovereign love, God responds to the voice of the people in Malachi who are doubting his love. That's how he responds to them. He points to Jacob and the overwhelming blessings that came to him and through him. The first and almost only, but the foremost, is God's choice of him. And to rebuke the waffling of the people even more, God points now to the intense rejection of Esau. Right? As further proof of his love for Jacob. Right? In rejecting Esau, we see how extraordinary it is that he set his love on Jacob. Right? What, what has happened to Esau by God's rejection of him? We read of that in verse 3 of Malachi 1. But I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation, and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Right from the start, of the inheritance of Esau was tainted. He married foreign Hittite women who grieved his parents, Isaac and Rebekah, right? He gave away his birthright for a bowl of soup. He lost his father's blessings through God's choice and a bit of treachery on the part of his mother. And he went to live in the mountains of Seir, rugged and unable to sustain crops and herds. Quite literally, as it says in Malachi, God made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. He went and lived in a rugged land. And all of this, God says, is proof of his love for Jacob. Verse 4 makes the point even deeper. Though Edom, Edom is the nation, the, the, the tribe that descends from Esau. Then Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may rebuild, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. 
the proof of God's gratuitous love for Jacob and rejection of Esau will go on being proven. Right? And in fact, during Malachi's time, this was being proven. Here is Israel back on the land, building the walls and the temple of Jerusalem. Edom, on the other hand, had no such favor from God, but they were continually in ruins. Calvin says this difference then was like a living representation by which the Jews might see the love of God towards Jacob and his hatred toward Esau. Right? Just by the, by the differences between them, he, they would be able to see the love or the hatred of God. One would think that the anger toward the Jews who were accusing God might surpass his anger for Edom. Right? Think about that. One might think that his anger toward the Jews, right, that he had exiled, that he had sent out of the land, right, that he was disciplining. One might think that, that Jacob's sins would make God angry at him than he was at Esau and Edom. But God is a covenant-keeping God, right? God is a covenant-keeping God. That is the difference between Jacob and Esau. That is the singular difference between Jacob and Esau is that covenant that God made. One has been promised God's blessings, the other his curses. Such is God's choice. And such we see in his long suffering with the Jews, right? He's so, so long suffering with them. How long suffering is, G- is, is God with the Jews? So long suffering. That he sends his own son who would be rejected and crucified by them. God is faithful though every man is a liar. He does not break his promises. He is not like you and me. He never breaks his promises. Verse 5 we read that this should be obvious visible before the eyes of the Jews. Your eyes will see this and you will say the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Right? He's like you should see this. You should see your blessings in having a covenant-keeping God, a gracious God, a God who forgives sins. Instead, they're saying, how have you loved us? I mean, it's astonishing rebellion. How have you loved us? Instead of magnifying God's name for the grace he has shown them, they are questioning his love. They are depriving God of what he deserves, which is praise. They're depriving God of what he deserves. Praise, praise, continual praise, right? Calvin makes a wonderful application here and one that is needed by us today too. He, he writes, God has gratuitously chosen us as a people to himself. Since this has been the case, we are his. For he has redeemed us by the blood of his own son and by rendering us partakers by the gospel of a favor so ineffably great He has made us his sons and his servants, except then we love and reverence him as our father, and except we fear him as our Lord, there is found in us at this day an ingratitude no less base than in the people during Malachi's time. Right? If you're not not praising God for the forgiveness of sins that you have by the shed blood of Jesus Christ... You're just imitating this. How have you loved us, God of Malachi? Oh, how often we do that. 
We have been redeemed by the shed blood and the broken body of the Son of God. The privileges that we enjoy as members of God's household far surpass even the privileges that the children of the flesh had. Right? That makes our ingratitude in the face of all God's blessings even more terrible. Some of you find yourself whispering to God through your pain or through your losses or through or through your stagnation, or through your sin, have you really loved me? Have you really loved me? Wouldn't all of my children be believers if you had really loved me? And though He has sovereignly chosen you, chosen you even before the very foundation of the world, you groan under the weight of His love. And I believe it's those who doubt the depth of God's love for them that God continues to afflict so that they might be emptied of the very last part of their self-reliance. Right? And being emptied of their self-reliance, they fully turn to Him and they finally rest in Him and they finally acknowledge Him as being the one thing that they have on heaven and on earth. Because God scourges every son whom he loves. The goal for all of us is to make the confession that Job made. Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. How often do we let our circumstances, even good circumstances, but good and bad, determine what we think about God? It's, it's relentless, right? Every little experience we go through becomes a theology. And we determine what God is by that. Israel did that. They saw the land in desolation. And rather than repenting for their sins, they blame God. God is weak, was their theology. God is unloving, was their theology. They said that God was lukewarm in his love. Think for a moment about how gross, how sinful it is to question God's love when you contemplate the following truth. If God is for us, who is against us? He, will, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes. Rather, who is raised who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, if that's God's promise to us, how terrible is, you know, have you really loved me? Or what about this? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us 
with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him, I have to take a breath now because that's one Pauline sentence. Paul is caught up in the love of God as he writes this. Right? In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. In Him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. It, simply put, is not right for us to be so blind to the gratuitous love of God toward us and to be so in tune with our complaints toward God. We have a hard time giving praise to God in our prayer meeting, but we have no problem coming up with a list of ways in which God has disappointed us. Right? Part of this is because we have not properly meditated on the riches we have in Jesus Christ. Right? You've allowed your mind to meditate on so many things this week, but, but one of them was not the riches you have in Jesus Christ. I mean, how can, how can we do that? How can we do that? We constantly live with ourselves and our perceptions, our pains and our disappointments. You know, and we have no need of being reminded of all those things. They occupy our thoughts, but, but what we must do is force those out with better thoughts of the whole situation. We need to be less short-sighted and longer-sighted. We have to take into account eternity past and eternity future. We have to think about the fact that God knew us before the foundation of the world. So this cold is really not that big of a deal. <laughs> we have to think about the fact that nothing can separate us from the love of God. So this new diagnosis is no big deal. We have to remind, be reminded that Jesus has gone ahead of us to prepare a place for us. So this or that financial loss is no big deal. All of what we experience in this life is never an excuse to question the love of God. Right? We, will, we will, because of our short-sightedness, we will, because of our experiences, 
um, we, will, we will fall into that temptation because our experiences are so intense for us. But the point we must all come to is that spiritual realities occupy a more intense place for us than mere physical realities in which I'm including emotional and relational things. Spiritual realities should be the most intense part of your life. That is precisely how the Apostle Paul prays for the Ephesians and where I'm going to close right now. Paul prays this. He prays, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. You ask how, notice where the Apostle Paul goes from there. He says that those things he just prayed are in accord or correspond to or are appropriate because Jesus rose from the dead. They correspond. All those thoughts and meditations correspond to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. They are powered up by Jesus' resurrection. These are in accordance with the workings of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So remember the resurrection, remember the ascension, remember the reign of Jesus Christ. The reign of the eternal king. If you do, you will not question the love of God, though you are experiencing what you think to be the ravages of exile. Right? God is sovereign. And it is... It is God's will for you to give thanks to him in everything. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have loved us. Father, we we know from John's letter that you loved us before we loved you. And so, Father, we thank you for setting your, your eternal love upon us. I pray that you would forgive us for the way that even knowing that we have questioned your love for us. I pray that we would more properly approach you in our prayers and in our minds and in our thoughts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.